Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 15. Uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in here, so let me give you a couple quick reminders. The book of Hebrews is a book written by a Hebrew to Hebrews about how not to be Hebrew anymore, right? Does that make sense? And so in this early uh, first century church, there's a lot of pressure being placed on these early Hebrews to go back and do some kind of like reformed Judaism, where they're where being part of and practicing the sacrificial system. Many of you know, I mean, we, we live in an area where tradition is highly honored. Uh, you know, if you don't believe me, head down to a third Saturday in October down in Knoxville or, or head over to ETSU, you know, for any of those different kind of sports traditions we have. And so you can understand that, you know, whether it was from influence of their past and how they did things or uh, influence from the Essenes that were close by, they were feeling this pressure to go back. And so the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, we don't know much about him, but uh, he's writing to them and saying, look, Jesus is by far superior to the types and forms of Judaism. There's an interesting thing, you know, this sounds like it might just be a first century problem, but it's even a problem today. Uh, I volunteer at the hospital some as a chaplain, and I've run into people who kind of get obsessed about Judaism and like they want to, uh, they like make it sort of their prime identity. And being a Christian is sort of secondary or non interesting to them. And I think that the author of Hebrews would have quite a bit to say about that this morning. And so, with that in mind, uh, let's look here at the Word of God and what it has to say. Title today's message is Jesus is a better mediator by far. Hebrews 9:15 says. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For while where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant will inaugurate without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, the water and scarlet wool and hippus, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Truly, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rituals, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places, made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as a high priest offers the holy places every year without blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of self, himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment, 
So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who have eagerly waiting for him. May God have blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write this eternal truth on your hearts today. I had a very negative experience at Krispy Kreme a few years back. My favorite donut is Crueler. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's a cut, looks kind of like a gear, and it is sour cream glaze because that was the best donut Krispy Kreme ever made. And I went to the counter, ordered. The guy said, I'm sorry, we have discontinued the Crueler. And I was like, what do you mean you've discontinued the crew? That's the best donut you've ever made. Like in all of donut, them everywhere, the crueler was the king, creme de la creme. You can't tell me you've canceled the crueler. And after I realized I was holding the guy's shirt, I had to sort of relinquish back and step back. He's, I said, can I get them anywhere? Is there anywhere I can get a crueler donut somewhere? Please tell me. Walmart somewhere. He said, well, in the stores that we ship to, I think they have the mini ones. So I frantically went on a search for crueler. I think I found a couple, three bags, and that got me through the next two days, right? And it was really stressful. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm not talking about the ones with blueberries. You've seen the crueler's they put blueberries in? It's offensive to me. It's the equivalent of what San Francisco did with pizza when they put broccoli on it, right? That is, what is wrong with you? You don't put blueberries in crullers. You don't put broccoli on pizza. This is just basic things, right? Anyway. Well, I think back in the 90s, how many of y'all remember, I was over at the Slagle's house this week because they had a death in their family and they busted out a big old box of Beanie Babies. You remember Beanie Babies? How many of y'all collected Beanie Babies? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. I did it too, right? Do you remember frantically searching for that one exclusive bear, right? The the princess bear or old glory or whatever it was. And now, you know, I, I don't know. What, what did we pay for them years ago? Do you remember? Like $5 a pop or something like that. And man, if I just invested that back then, right? If I just bought the right stock. Now we've let our kids drool all over them and play with them outside. And they're worthless, right? It's hard to you buy a thousand beanie babies for $10 now, right? I mean, you can get them for about nothing. They're just not hold, they're holding their value. You know, in a similar fashion here, what we're learning, and I think one of the points that the author's making here is that uh, <clears throat> we, are, we have no assurance whatsoever and little hope, really, that anything in this world that we truly enjoy and that uh, we like is going to be around. Most of the stuff in our lives that we are frantically searching for, like Cruller Donuts or like Beanie Babies or whatever, uh, we're frantically looking for this, and at the end of the day, all that stuff is going to pass away, isn't it? Uh, yet there's just this, life is just this frantic pursuit of stuff. And in, and in Hebrews here, what he's doing here is he's telling us, you know, they had trusted in Christ. They were, they, they are, you are secure in what Christ has done for you. You don't need to do this frantic pursuit for the things of God because Christ has uh, paid it all. You are in fellowship with him. You have been given something better than these Old Testament types and shadows. You have been given Jesus Christ. 
uh, I shared this on Wednesday night, and I'll share it again. You know, it's almost like, you know, the what we're going to see in the text in here in just a minute, these Old Testament forms and types all point to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like in construction. You know, in construction, you, you use scaffolding to build the wall and building up. And then you take the scaffolding down when the building is complete. In many ways, all these sacrifices and the system and all, it's kind of like the scaffolding to get to the permanent thing that's going to be there. I mean, how silly would it be if you came to church next week and I had scaffolding and plastic all around the building right now, right? And wouldn't you just think that is just insanity? Now, what are you doing, Pastor? Well, I'm just making sure our building is built. Well, it's already been built. It's been completed. It's done, right? Do we have a storm? No, no, no. Everything was like it was last week. I just, I want, I want the scaffolding back up. Well, that's kind of what these Hebrews were going to here. That's, that's the point he's making here. This return back to it, it would be insanity. It's, it's absolutely crazy to frantically pursue these things when Christ completed work has allowed us to have the rest and the joy of knowing Him. And here's what we have. We have an inheritance here. This passage here, first of all, right off the bat, verse 15, therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. The very fact that there has to be a mediator tells us something very important. Why do you have a mediator? Well, you have a mediator when you have two parties that are in conflict with one another and they're estranged and they can't work it out on their own. So a mediator is set in. And the mediator brings about a conclusion to it so fellowship can be restored. The fact that there's a mediator tells us one important thing. We couldn't restore our relationship and fellowship with God, which is what these Hebrews are after. They're trying to do, 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 do to restore fellowship with God, and they can't do that because they need the mediator to do it for them. And it says here, into a new covenant. This is very much Jeremiah 31 language. This is what Jesus told the disciples when they were absorbing the Passover. And we're going to do the Lord's Supper here in the while. Perfectly worked out here with the text today to do the Lord's Supper today, talking about a text like this. And notice what it says here, so that those who are called may receive. Um, you know, well, this is a beautiful thing that we're seeing here. What we have in this passage here, the author's telling the Hebrews, look, and he's telling us today, you have an inheritance, an inheritance of salvation and fellowship with God that is eternal. And, and in this passage, he gives us about three or four things that solidify the importance of that inheritance. The first one is right here. There's a covenant. God has made a covenant. It's interesting here. If you look at this passage in Greek, you can't see it in English, but if you look at it in Greek, the word here in verse 15 for covenant is also the same Greek word used in verse 16 for will, like last will and testament. And same in 17, same in 18, again back to covenant, and same in 20 and covenant. How many of your Bibles say testimony? Some of your translations will say testimony instead of covenant. Does anybody say that this morning? I think the King James says that and some of the others. Uh, there's a, it can be used in any of those different ways depending on the context uh, that is around it and it be translated correctly. We, we think about here though this covenant and it says here the qualifier in 15, those who were called, it, it very much reminds us of Romans 8.28, right? Uh, those who trusted the Lord, uh, all things work together for the good that those that, that love God, right? Those who are ch- called out to God's love 
People in the old covenant here, the one that was made with Israel, the one with the sacrificial system, the one with all the rules and the regulations, with the shedding of blood that he has gone to great lengths in chapter 9 to explain how all of that worked. By the way, I, I bet the ladies in here this morning are happy that we're not under the old covenant at a minimum for this. Uh, just think, if we were under the old covenant this morning, I would have to come in here, sacrifice an animal, dip a, a cloth wrapped on a stick and a cloth in there and sling blood over you all this morning, right? How many of you ladies would be down for that for worship on Sunday morning, right? That'd be great, wouldn't it? At a minimum, that's one good thing that you don't have to worry about is blood covering the, the purifying all that and, and, and purifying the people. So the new covenant here that we see is, is one of the main reasons we have this inheritance. Second thing here, let's talk about the other use of this word. And he says here, move forward just a little bit, that a will is involved in verse 16. The death of the one who made it must establish it, for a will takes effect only at death. Right? So what's the difference between a covenant and a will in our mind? Well, the difference is a covenant takes place between two people immediately. Right? So we're making a covenant together. It starts now. A will and last will and testimony takes place upon death. So a person has to die before it to happen. One of my professors at seminary told this story about a guy that was very wealthy, and he told him, he said, you know, <clears throat> when I die, I'm going to leave a large amount of money to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and that will be used to train future preachers and ministers of the gospel. And I want him to do it under your leadership. He said, well, I'm very flattered for that. But, you know, he told us, he said, uh, that's a good thought. But he said, I'll probably never see... Uh, any of those men that will be helped by that money. He said, that guy will probably outlive me. And even if he doesn't outlive me, there's a tendency of, of older men who are have quite a bit of money to marry younger women that are like, they're 70, she's 35, and I want to make sure she's taken care of, and so it won't pass until uh, she passes away, and then finally it'll go to Southern Seminary. And uh, he made a joke and said, you know, if you want to live a long time, you need to make sure that you write a donation to a ministry of the Lord. Because he said, it seems like people who have, have included that in their, in their will and testimonies live a long time. I think it's a great practice. Every member of a church, you should, you should leave a portion to your church family, right? For, to ensure continuing ministry of the gospel uh, happens in your local context. Um, there's an interesting book about wills, like people's last will and testament. I was reading a little section of it, and there was an interesting story about this lady who, <clears throat> she didn't have much. Her name was Marie Curry. Marie Curry only had one gram of something that was valuable. And the one gram was pure radium. It was an element that her and her husband had discovered. And she left it to the University of Paris, and they couldn't have it until she passed away. And when she passed away, everything she owned was worthless except that one gram of pure Radium, and they tell that it's difficult to even price what that's worth because the value is so priceless there's not much to compare it to. In a similar fashion here, you contrast this with the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story of the prodigal son? What did they say? They said, you know, I want my inheritance now, Dad. I want to wait for you to die. Pretty much dead to me now. Just give me my inheritance now, right? I want what's coming to me, right? I, I just imagine this conversation. I don't think my boys would ever do this, but if they ever did come to me and say, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I want what's coming to me now. I think my reply would be, what's coming to you is the tip into my boot here, son, right? <laughs> That's what's coming to you right now with a request like that. Uh, you know, you can see the arrogance that is there. 
You know, you don't get an inheritance till you die. So in this regard here, we see, first of all, a new covenant established. Second of all here, uh, there is a death, right? It, it says it here in the passage. A death has occurred and a will has been given. So the death here establishes the fact that there is a inheritance that will be given. <clears throat> Once the death happens, you receive the inheritance. And by the way, there's something very important here. Just as I said a minute ago, the mediator is the one who's going to do a lot of the work for reconciling relationships. In this particular scenario, what kind of work do you do for a will? You don't do any work, right? You just receive it. You receive a will based on what the person has uh, given. And a lot of times it boils down to the next of kin and who you're related to has nothing to do with what you've done. I've known people who have tried to help people that were very rich and had no family left. And then when they die, either they didn't think about it or they didn't care or whatever, and they didn't even leave them a, a blade of grass on their property, right? They didn't leave them anything. So just, just because you work and try to help somebody has a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean you'll get the inheritance. You only get the inheritance if it is meant to go to you you will accept it and if that person dies there must be a death and in this particular section of scripture Jesus Christ meets those formats right his death ensures that the inheritance of salvation which is eternal is sealed and given to you no matter what so it's really just an issue of receiving what has been inherited and, and having that benefit uh, third guarantee, verses 18 through 23, he begins this discussion here of purification. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And he goes down through here, and this whole section ends again with, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Many of our Muslim friends don't understand why. Jesus had to die. They don't get the fact that uh, his death was necessary. It was necessary for the inheritance to be given. And in these verses, what we're going to see, his blood brings purification. In the Old Testament, he describes here what it would be like to get ready to, to worship. The one that was declared by Moses, where he took the blood of calves and goats and water and, and sprinkled it all over the Bible, right over the scrolls, over the uh, elements that were used in worship, over the people, over all these areas, because the blood is seen as consecrating and purifying all that is ready for worship. Now, there's an interesting little section here in this in this passage where it talks about Jesus purifying heavenly things. I think it's down in verse 23. And you may immediately ask the question of, how is it that Jesus purifies heavenly things? Well, uh, you know, everything that's in heaven is in the presence of God. So the presence of holiness wouldn't already be purified. I think, yes, in one sense that is true, but I think that he is consecrating here for the purpose he is purifying it uh, to be used just when he took in his own blood, right? Everything that was made in the temple obviously must mimic something that is in heaven. It's a shadow and type of what is in heaven. And as he shared his blood and gave his blood on the mercy seat of God, he, there seems to be a sense in which he is consecrating the purposes that the Father set into motion and the plan that He set into motion. And there's also that passage in Ephesians, which kind of hurts my brain to think about, but try to think about this with me for just a minute, where He says that we will set together in heavenly places. He goes on to clarify that we are, and, and it's in the past tense, so it's like 
this is hard for me to think about, he says that we, God's people, are already seated in the heavenly places. So it could even be applied to the fact that His blood is applied to us in those heavenly places. It's hard to think of that we are already in heaven in one sense in a biblical fashion in the way that this is being framed. So Jesus here pointing that out. While I'm pointing out one other thing, there is not just a beauty to this in bringing clarity to the gospel and why Jesus had to die. There is a there is a beautiful structure here in this section of verses, verses 18 down to 22. I've talked about chiastic structures on Wednesday night. If you've ever joined me on Wednesday night, it's like an A, B, B, A type structure. A and A are the same. B and B are the same. Or A, B, C, B, a, where you try to make the one the main point by, by you know, doing it. Well, they do this, and the author does this in 18 down to 22. Let's just kind of look at this real quick. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And so in this particular one, the chiastic structure is not A, B, B, A. It's A, B, C, D, C, B, A. The first A is about blood. You move forward a little bit here, it talks about the law, right? 19, whoever was uh, commanded of the law. He took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled it, saying, the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood. So, he, so it's the blood, the law, the sprinkling, the covenant, the, 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 the law, the sprinkling, the blood. And you see it there, right there at the end. There is no shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So he has labored intently so that you would see clearly uh, God's will and understanding how the blood, how the, how the covenant, and how the inheritance all work together to bring about an assurance and an eternal fellowship with God. And he moves down to verse 24. And it, and it shifts gears here a little bit because he's going to move from focusing on the, the blood and the covenant, all, he's going to shift into talking more about using words of appearance and entrance are going to be the main domination of the next section of Scripture. And it's really important here because the purpose here in 25 was to show Jesus Christ offer himself not repeatedly as the priest in the Old Testament did, but that he, this mediator is by far more superior because he offers himself once. And that takes care of it for eternity. You know, really, the blood of Jesus Christ in the cross, if that did not happen, it makes all of that work in the Old Testament void. It doesn't mean anything because it's all looking forward to Jesus. You know, there's this neat little passage here uh, right in the beginning that's, I don't know if you think about the things this way, but since a death has occurred, or excuse me, back in 15, Many receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since death has occurred, that redeems them from a death that occurred here under the transgression committed under the first commandment. The cross of Jesus Christ is the apex of human history because the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just stretch into the future as an atonement for God's people in the future where we are as we look back over the completed work of Christ, but His work on the cross spans backwards in time all the way back to Abraham and Moses and the sins that were committed by God's people there. As they offer those things in faith, they are saved with a future looking forward to the coming of Christ. And these passages confirm that is how they're saved. So the saints in the Old Testament are not saved by works of their own. They are saved by the completed works of Jesus Christ and receive the same inheritance we do because they were faithful to those things. 
So here we see also in Hebrews something else I want to bring out. Hebrews is full of some of the most stern warnings in all of the New Testament. I mean, I don't believe this way, but I've had friends that try to convince me that you can lose your salvation. And I think I kind of remedied that a few weeks ago when I said, I like John MacArthur's quote, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And he's right, isn't he? But I think that the warning passages are placed there for two reasons. One, they are a means that keep us in salvation. And two, they show us for those that are questioning, well, this person was part of the faith and now he doesn't seem to be. What happened? Well, were they ever truly part of the faith? First John tells us they went out from us because they weren't of us, right? Well, in a similar fashion here, uh, the author here is, is, is warning us. You look down in verse 27. There's something that everyone has to contend with in this passage. Verse 27 is one of those things. Um, John, or John MacArthur, the, excuse me, not John MacArthur, General MacArthur in World War II once said this. Uh, Plato is attributed with a quote, only the dead see the end of war. And I would put a caveat with that and say only the dead in Christ see the end of war because those who die and are not in Christ, I think it's continual suffering and gnashing of teeth. But look at verse 27 here. Justice is appointed for man to die once. There's a, there's a couple of things that kind of come out here. There's two things to contend with. Verse 22 and verse 27. 22 reminds us that you have to have a blood offering to have salvation. There's no other way. And there's nobody blood that's perfect or sufficient except the blood of Christ. He's made that very clear. And the second part is, it's appointed to man to die and then face the judgment. You know, Christianity is not therapy. It's not a therapy session. It is not a new start. Christianity is a new heart, isn't it? Uh, we have to have the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, and believe and have a constant confidence in that. We, we have to know that there is a certainty of death and judgment to come. Listen, um, if you're a Christian, verse 27 pretty much knocks out any possibility of reincarnation. I've had people before try to tell me they think Christians are reincarnated, and I just point to this verse, right? It says here, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die how many times, church? One time. If reincarnation were true, how many times would you die? Uh, it is appointed unto man to die again and again and again and again and again, right? <laughs> That's not what it says. It is appointed man to die one time, and then after that to face the judgment. And then he goes on and tells us here, so, so as we think about the preachers this morning standing up in pulpits all across our nation, they're standing up with a certainty knowing that there is blood needed for the sacrifice of the inheritance and that everybody they're preaching to will die. You know, that's the thing about it. We just celebrated 78 years of Grace Baptist Church. Do you know how many people are still at this church from 78 years ago? One. And, and I'll be quite honest, she's on our prayer list because she has health concerns. Here is the reality. Uh, there'll be a day that will come, somebody will preach everybody in, sitting in here's funeral. Even mine. You know, it's appointed to us to die one time. The question is, have you truly believed the blood of Christ is sufficient for you? Do you truly believe that? And are you confident to face the judgment that will come? You know, it's easy to simply say, if I could just simply say this, one of the closing main points and thoughts here. 
If Jesus took the wrath of God when He shed His blood for you and for me and He became our high priest and He spread His blood on the mercy seat, if He took that judgment of God, then verse 24 or 28 helps us here. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Here's, here's what you're supposed to do with this, church. I'm, those of you who have already accepted this. You're supposed to eagerly wait for Him. If He took your judgment, you need to take His will for your life, right? There are sections of Hebrews. Listen to me closely. There are sections of Hebrews that make it really clear. If you're trying to claim Jesus Christ, we're going to run into a few of them here shortly. And you are living as if you haven't. You are not saved. You're just not. Uh, that's just the reality of it. If you, you can't take Christ and let Him take your judgment and then you not take His will for your life. You have to take it. My grandmother was very ill with stage 4 lung cancer in the fall of 99. She died on Valentine's Day of 1999. She was sick in the fall of 98. I remember she was sitting there. She lost all her hair. She'd been watching preaching all day, and this was one of the last conversations I remember having with her. And she said, you know, Travis, there's a lot of people who are just like fixated on end times, end times preaching, end times study, all these different things about end times. She said, you know, it really doesn't matter when Jesus returns. When you die, that's the end of time for you, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. It is, Memo. And it wasn't, but a few months after that, she went home to be with the Lord, and time was over for her. Question is this morning, what about you? You sit here and you say, I'm young. I'm full of life. I have years ahead of me. I have a 10-year-old boy on my football team that has a brain tumor. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What if Christ comes for you tomorrow? What if Christ comes for you this afternoon? Do you have confidence that you have trusted in the blood as the only Sufficient sacrifice for your sins? Your only hope for eternity? Are you ready to face the judgment? Are you eagerly living for Him? You know, back about a year ago, Beck went on a cruise with my mom. They went to, where did y'all go, Beck? You went to Cosmel, all these different places. And I stayed home with the kids. And it was great. I was glad she got to go. And uh, I, I got to tell you something. I eagerly awaited her return. All right? Eagerly awaited. Like, right, right when I found out she was, you know, getting ready to start heading home, I tried to clean up, straighten up here. I didn't want her to think I was just sitting around like some kind of a slob the whole time she was gone, right? I wanted to know that we were working diligently on homework, trying to keep the house straight, trying to match kids' clothes as best I could. I think I have a disability with colors or something. I'm not sure what it is. You know, I think that's a good snapshot picture. Are we eagerly anticipating Christ's return that way? Are we just sitting back doing whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it? I think the message here with the Hebrew author is trust in Christ's atonement and wait for Him eagerly. I think as we all get older, we one, more of our friends move to heaven than live here, right? As time goes on. And two, we feel the heartache of this world, don't we? Pain and heartache, and we long for Christ to come. But, it's, but we just hope everyone's ready. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.
bow before you this morning on a text like this and a day like this. I just ask that everyone who may be far from you would draw close, Lord. God, if there's anyone here today that has never accepted your sacrifice, that has never never in, in their life trusted fully down to the marrow of their bone, that you alone and your work is sufficient, Lord, I just pray you draw them to yourself today. Lord, as we observe the Lord's Supper, um, God, we just pray that it would be a reminder of the gospel, of the things that we preached and discussed today, that the blood must be shed for there to be forgiveness of sins. As we, drink, as we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, it is an image of the gospel that we take the gospel into us and we are forever, it is forever part of us. God, help us this morning to do this in a faithful way. In your name we pray, amen.